welcome to the Pyramid Podcast, where three lads discuss all things the English football pyramid. On today's episode, Graham Bailey joins us to speak all things transfers. Has the Champions League lost its magic? It's Carabao Cup final time with Liverpool taking on Chelsea. The big games upcoming in the weekend's Premier League fixtures. We'll preview the key games from the EFL, including a ginormous Friday night football between Leeds and Leicester. And we'll finish with Laura, who talks through Yeovil's midweek win versus Western Supermare weekend fixture at Chelmsford and reveal the answer to Monday's trivia question. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. And once again, I'm joined by Tom Lawrence and Tom Gallagher. Right, delighted to have been joined now by Graham Bailey, who, according to his Twitter page, is the strategic and operational head of football, so transfer and everything else that matters at HITC Football. Graham, thanks very much for coming on, mate. Not a problem. Um, so, Graham, thanks very much for joining us. Um, obviously, you've been a sport journalist for a long time now, Planet Sport, 90 Min, Team Talk, and obviously now, like Murphy says, HITC. Um just tell us a little bit about your career and how you come, how you came to specialise in uh, transfer journalism, if you will. Yeah, so obviously it's a, it's a long, long, long time ago now when I was uh, at uni at the turn of the century, is is now, depressingly. Um, <laughs> I always had the ambition to go into journalism and I I was very lucky, actually. I applied for a job upon... So if I was a few months out of university, I went to I graduated from Leeds in with a, a degree in journalism and politics, and I was applying for jobs all around the country really. And I applied for I applied for even if it's just loosely related to the topic I wanted to do. I applied for a job at Opta at the time it was, and, and Opta back then were owned by a company in Yorkshire, and the guys were setting up a brand new website at the time, planetfootball.com was being set up at the time and they're just looking through CVs and my CV caught, CV caught his attention and I got a job at the very first Planet Football, off to soccer as it was called back then and Planet Football back then was a company who used to run um, club websites, used to run like Everton, Middlesbrough, Leeds, quite a few um, back in the day and they were launching just a news website so I got a job there and, and it was online straight away. I never thought about online and not online. And as it transpires, I've worked online my whole career. Obviously, it's a very trendy thing now. It wasn't back in the day. And I'll come at a few bits out where, um, especially when I got into Sky. But yeah, so it was Planet Football. We launched that website. Planet Football became hugely popular. We managed to get that off the ground. It was then bought by Sky Sports, became Sky Sports' online branch. So then I spent 20 years with Sky um launching numerous things with them. Um skysports.com that is. Um we became their, their football service and their new service. It was all business leads at the time. Um and, and that's where what you're saying Tom, that's why I got into to the transfer side. I, I became like the news editor there. Um it was just a lot when you get a lot of group of young journalists, lots of young 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 journalists at the time. There was a few of us who wanted to do transfers. Um I was there um, Peter Rock was there at the time as well, so um, one of the one of the big guys around at the minute. So, been a pretty good breeding ground actually. Me, me and Pete both came from the same place. Um, yeah. So on Sky Sports, I stayed there, and then the 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 moved the operation back to London after twenty years, and and then I went freelance from there. Um, into the Sunday papers for the People, the Mirror. And I first touched base with um with Hit C at the time. Um, I was working for them. And then um, I went to Team Talk. And most recently, um, I went to 90 Min to help build up their brand. 
and became a transfer correspondent, which again, three, four years ago, it wasn't really a thing. Um, but we decided to go down that route. And then um, I made my latest move in the transfer window <laughs> in, in January. I moved to uh, GRV Media. Um, Hit C is my main area of focus, but if you're not a GRV, cover about 40 different clubs now. There's TBR there as well. It's a huge stable. Um, it's a wonderful upcoming company. I'm very lucky to be there. And yeah, I'm embracing it. It's a new, it's a new, new role for me, new job. Doing the same things as as in in, in the blurb. Still doing transfers, but yeah, um, we're going around the whole. I said I've stayed. I've been where I'm twenty years. And it's 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 the in thing now, isn't it, to work online? But I remember we're going to press conference, Millsbury, Newcastle, and and ironically, some of the journalists back then, Simon Bird and George Calkins as well. George Calkins, who ironically works at Athletic now, him and Simon Bird used to get me thrown out of press conferences because I was an online journalist. <laughs> I remember them getting me thrown out of press conferences because I was online, and now ironically, their most of their work is online now as well. Um, but hey, that's all in the past, and uh, everyone's embracing on everyone's embracing <laughs> online content yeah. now. So uh, yeah, and, and long. It's just it's just how it how it's come about. I, I was always a firm believer in the online, and uh, yeah, it's all um, it's all carrying on, kicking on. Yeah, exactly that. And like you say, you've been online um, for a long time now. But I guess another wrinkle um, to that online world now is social media, and um, we've seen over the years with the rise of the likes of Fabrizio Romano on um, on social media, one of the most popular transfer um journalist i guess on there um got over 20 million followers i think on on twitter how how would you say social media has affected that space um because it seems to me like it has massively obviously i wouldn't have a job if it if social media wasn't about so yeah massively no i i was involved in launching you no know, Sky Sports on 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 Twitter as it was back then. It was a new service, the Transfer Centre. I was involved in that launch as well on Sky. So we were there at the very start, and obviously you can see I, I joined joined it quite early myself. And it doesn't impact on me massively because you no, know, I'm I'm a bit old fashioned. Still, I, I still use my sources on the phone, and I've still got a nice notepad and pen that I use. Um, so, so I'm I'm a bit old fashioned in that regard. But yeah, and and but you know, as you can see, I do embrace social media. Uh, I've got a decent following myself, and I use that. And I'm I'm not gonna. I'm I don't doubt that my my big social media following helped me got the jobs I have in the last ten years. You know, if if, if I didn't have these big social media followers, so it's, I don't think it's essential. But I think you build up your fan base. Sorry, fan base. That sounds crude. <laughs> you, you build. You, you, I, I don't make it sound. I, that that sounded bad. Your followers, you build up, and yeah. you know, and and John, there's there's people who dislike what I write who follow me. There's people who like what I write. I don't. I don't really get involved too much. You know, I just have a gold rule: don't don't abuse and swear. If you can, if you can abuse me without swearing, you won't get blocked. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I don't mind people coming back at me. It's it's what it's there for. Um, I. It's it's fascinating, you know. A lot of aggregators now, now guys, you know, it's it's a different world. Obviously, I don't spend all my day, believe it or not, on Twitter. I do get a bit. Um, sometimes I forget to post my stories as well. I do smart. I did, I had a story yesterday that we did. I did about um, Bradley Loco, the the breast fullback who Chelsea were looking at, and I I, to, I forgot to post it. 
that's just I don't that's down that's just down to old age I think probably but um so yeah I don't let it um drive my entire life but it's hugely important. I think it gives the fans access to everything, you know. It's and I guess the big thing is it's free, you know, people get to see it for free, which is huge. Um you hope that there are click throughs, you know, a lot of people people get accused of clickbait. I still firmly believe that 1995, everything you see is well-sourced. I like to think it is, you know. I do like to think it's all well-sourced. I know some people doubt what we write, but I know all the guys I speak to in the industry, you know, we have contacts. I say I do it. I spend most of my time on my phone every day speaking to people, ringing, ringing people. That's how I do it. I don't particularly... I don't send any emails out to people and stuff like that, so um, I still do it a bit of the old-fashioned way. But yeah, but it's yeah, it's a massive part. Of course, of course, it is. It's a massive world, and if you ignored it, you, you're getting left behind, and you probably won't be involved now. Yeah, and Graham, I just want to um, come to the most recent transfer window. So I think January is probably one of the most quiet ones in recent times. Um, off the back of Everton's 10-point deduction for breaking the the kind of PSR rules. Do you think that that's the new financial reality for clubs moving forward, that January is going to be a quiet, uh, quiet time? Or do you think clubs are just a little bit nervous about their dealings at the moment and it might pick back up? I, I think a major, and going into this window, we, I wasn't expected to be so quiet. But I think a massive part of it is how weak the Premier League is this season. You know, we've got three... If we take if we if Everton didn't have those points deducted, we've got three clubs who are really by far the weakest teams we've ever seen in the Premier League. Luton are making a good fist of it, fair enough, but Burnley uh, have been horrific. Hundred million pounds spent and the worst in the world last season. And I saw them. I say I can say that with full authority. I saw them plenty both times. Chef United, look, and 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 we, so we didn't see any panic buying in January. The likes of Palace, Fulham, Brentford, Forest. In years gone by, they, but but for, so for instance, Fulham and, Fulham and Crystal Palace both desperate for strikers. Looking at it, going, do we spend twenty, thirty million pounds on a striker here? If we, but are we going to stay up without it? Yeah, we probably are. So we don't need to do it. So I think that cut the market in half straight away. No panic buys. You know what? What is the biggest deal on the last day of the window? Armando Brogia going on loan. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's what, it's what I mean, it, it's and I think so. That was a huge part of it. I think at the top end, you know, Arsenal didn't. Arsenal, City, Liverpool kept the powder dry. I was surprised that Arsenal didn't do it. To be fair, I think they were seriously considering it. I think there's a real, a real Arsene Wenger streak in Mikel Arteta now. You know where he he refused all all the time to do deals. That like he, he believed in what he had. I think come the end of the season, we may some, we see some regrets from Arsenal. I think they, were, they needed a striker in the summer. And Ketty and Hayes just simply weren't right. Havertz doesn't play that forward role anyway. I, I think of all the ones who we saw, I think Arsenal were ones who might regret it. The rest of them they did the business in January. But going back to the original question, I don't think it'll be historically as, as quiet as that again. For instance, next season, if the three who I suspect come up the three powerful teams, Southampton, Leeds and Leicester. Next season, next season's Premier League is going to be a whole different kettle of fish. It's going to be... Them three are really strong. Them three are good enough to stay up now. Next season's Premier League. Next, The summer's going to be a huge transfer window. And then come January, I think we will see a big January because the bottom eight will all be in trouble and we will see them spend. 
you know. Um, so I, I, I don't think it'll be as bad as as quiet as we saw this time around. But yeah, it's always going to be a bit quieter than than the summer. But I don't um, think we'll see that repeated um, for a little while. We're obviously now in February, but looking at HITC and the kind of constant stories that you've got coming out, you seem to be kind of as busy as ever. You've got managerial changes upcoming, Barca, Liverpool, Bayern Munich, big stories like Mbappe. You've got other stories that you do about uh, upcoming summer transfers. Do you find yourself just as busy outside of the windows in recent years as during? I try to be. You know, the way the way I do it, I speak to my contacts um, and and not annoy them but they'll they'll tell you that I, I'm in touch with them regularly I'm in touch with them every week of the year I don't just ring people in January in the summer that's not how I work you know and I've only you know I'm I'm not I'm not Fabrizio who does a wonderful job and and his team um I, I can't cover that many bases I've got about 20 to 30 real top contacts who I speak to regularly and, and there's other ones as well but um that's how I do my keep contacting and yeah, it's 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 a live thing. It's a constant thing, you know. When I've I've got um, my notes and stuff of like thirty thirty to forty stories I'm working on all the time. It's just when to pull the trigger, um, when you get that information, when you have to go, and that's on top of the other things because now um, we have to confirm things, you know. So in terms of what we can produce on Hit C um, and the sites around, I'll be able to confirm stories, and we can do stuff on the back of it. Um, which is important as well because it is our own story. But when you co- and it's important to get things confirmed by clubs. So that's part of the job I do is speaking to contacts at clubs and in and around the clubs to get information confirmed or denied. I don't like doing, and you won't see on Hitsy very much. You never saw it in ninety min when I worked there previously and team talk as well. You won't you won't really see many denial stories because that's just negative. There's no point in doing that. You got and. And you have to people have to trust the sources. There'll always be some information that doesn't happen. You even see it with Fabrizio sometimes, where it doesn't always it doesn't always come through. But you have to trust your sources. Yeah. And I don't believe in people slagging off other people's sources. We don't see it too much, but when you do see it, it's like come come on, guy. Everyone's everyone's doing it for the right reason. You hope they are. Um. So yeah. Um. So that's part of it as well. So yeah, it's a constant feeding of the um. Of the stories that you got, you get told about. You're chasing up, and it's such a frustration. You, you can spend a week on the phone chasing up ten stories, and then not get anything out of it. It's not what your bosses like to hear that you're being busy on the phone and nothing, nothing's coming about of it. So, um, but yeah, and it's, it does tick over with that confirmation stuff, you know, and getting things like we had this stuff with Ratcliffe and Ten Hag and all that coming out. So, um, yeah, it keeps us on our toes. Yeah, and um, I suppose just on that. Um, ever-changing stories obviously the biggest example of that over the last couple of years I would suggest would be um, Kylian Mbappe it seems like every couple of months over the last two or three years maybe even five years he's been um, linked with a move to Real Madrid it seems like um, he will be getting that move um, this summer Um, and what I wanted to know because not so much whether that 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 move is definitely going to happen because I think we can all pretty much see the writing on the wall there. But what I wanted to know was how does a big move like that? I know it's a free transfer, but there's a lot of wages involved and a big sign-on bonus, etc. How does a massive move like that affect the rest of the market? Because obviously you've got the likes of PSG potentially needing to replace a player like that. 
and then Real Madrid potentially having to sell one or two to balance the books. And then there's a whole um, almost transfer merry-go-round that might happen. Is that is that something that um, you you expect to see happen? Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting one. I think I think that's a good start. It's a good start to talk about because it's got so many different facets to it. You know, stories like that where. <laughs> You have to trust your sources in the first instinct. I, I've, I was always on the line. I was always told by um, my Real sources, and it takes a while to build these sources. And I've had, I've had, I've had a few guys close to Real for a good ten, twenty years now, and you have to believe um, what they tell you. They were right with Jude Bellingham for me, which stood me in good stead. And, and I've always been, and what I'm trying to do now um, with Hit C is like, we, we, once we decide on a line, on an angle, on a story, a line, we have to stick to it. And and in going here, we were always in Bappe for Real Madrid. That's that's our line. We've got to stick to it. Some of the, um, if you remember back in back in December time, I think it was Build and even Marco were reporting that the deal wasn't going to happen. Um, and you just have to stick to your thing. In terms of the actual story itself, Tom, I think it will have a knock on effect. Real Madrid, and what you have to think about profit and sustainability, you're going to play for nothing who is then worth at least 100 million on your sheet. On your stock, when you're doing your stock take of your squad, that has a huge bearing on things. Getting a big free transfer like that is unprecedented. Um, you know, but that helps him. We saw it with Antonio Rudiger when he went there getting a free transfer. There's a hundred million pound defender suddenly, on if you're costing your squad out. I think the domino effect, as you say, the domino effect from Mbappe. That's where we'll see a change because. Florentino Perez always had Perez lined up, has always had Mbappe lined up for this summer. He's got Hendrik lined up as well. There's talk talk of a possible loan deal back to Brazil for him, which we'll have to see. Um, but I'll expect, I fully expect Alfonso Davis to go there as well this summer. But the impact of Mbappe, as you say, will be what the PSG do. We know that they are looking to replace him. But also, what I'd say with PSG is they're looking to replace Goncalo Ramos as well. So we've seen his links with Osterman. Which are true, but not as a direct. I've been told not as a direct replacement from Mbappe. The the Carlo Ramos experiment has not worked, and everyone forget they paid sixty seventy. Is there a chance he could go the opposite way? Possibly, but player swaps don't really happen. But let's not forget. So I think two forwards could easily go into PSG. Osimhen. I personally think we might see Rafael go in there for Messi Milan, um, and then Milan have got other plans as well. But I think Rafael go in there to fill that whole that place on the left hand side. You know, Campos knows him from his Lille days. I think that one makes a lot of sense. Um, so, but I think still think we'll see two in there. Osimhen's going to be fascinating. He's going to be a huge story this summer. Chelsea are desperate to get him. He's the number one target. Arsenal have looked. Mm, I'm I'm not sure how how far up in that race they are. I don't think they're as far as Chelsea. But PSG PSG are a worry to Chelsea. They really are. Okay, great. And um, just I guess some. A, a big transfer closer to the ho- closer to home in, in terms of the Premier League this this summer um, will be Ivan Tony. Um, we all expect him to leave Brentford. He's got one year left on his deal when the summer comes around. So Brentford will be, I guess, forced to sell um, to get maximum value for him. Obviously, if he doesn't sign a new contract, do you see or which, which of the big six Premier League clubs do you see um, leading the way for his transfer? It's a tough one. Um, I think, depending on the price tag, obviously Brentford were asking in excess of 60 in January. Nobody realistically showed an interest. 
with his age profile, it's tough, isn't it? Um, to see someone doing that. We know the top six are keen. Um, it depends on the price. It wouldn't surprise me, as as you were saying, if any of the top six showed an interest. You know, Newcastle will move on from Callum Wilson, for instance. I think Manchester United will be looking for an experienced front man to help Hoyland to come in and compete with him as well. Tottenham are looking for, I believe, two forwards, a winger and maybe a forward as well. So there's three of the teams who are who are, who are going to be interested. Man City aren't in for him. We know that. Arsenal are interesting. I think if the price comes down, maybe because I do. I think we'll see Eddie, Eddie and Ketia move on. So then there'll be real space in there. And Chelsea, I, he's not top of Chelsea's list. You know, if they don't get Osimhen, will it turn to Tony? Quite possibly. They've done work on him before, so it wouldn't be a huge surprise. So as you say, there is four or five of them in there who you can make, who who have showed an interest in him, doing the due diligence on the striker. And we'll have to see where it goes. Um, obviously, he's concentrating on getting in the England squad, which I think he's got a good chance of getting in at the moment, actually, to be fair to him. So, yeah, um, I don't think we can say anyone is massively favourites for him at the moment. But I do, Liverpool and City aside, I think there's a case for, for the rest of them um, to be interested, which they are. Yeah, and just on that, Graham, obviously we've spoken about Mbappe there and we've spoken about Tony are quite two high-profile ones that are well-known in the news. Are there any kind of uh, little gems that you've got for us that have potential big names to watch out for this summer? I think, as we alluded to, the, the manager market's going to be really fascinating. It's strange in terms of recruitment. See, let's see where Xabi Alonso lands. Still think I still think Liverpool have got a great chance of getting him, but I think Liverpool are going to be fascinated not just because of the manager, but it's his Mo Salah situation. I think we might see him go this summer. I think it'll be, I think it's the right time, and and he obviously will head to Saudi at some point. Um, and it's what they do with that, but I think the way that Liverpool have operated has been fantastic. They've got his front five who are obviously Salah's the key man there. But the way they have built that front of five, they're fantastic, aren't they? You know, Salah drops out of that. and But then the four who are left have been fantastic, haven't they? Jota, Gakpo, Diaz, and they can all play all over the place. There's probably only Diaz there who you'd say he has to play left. The rest of them can play everywhere. And even Diaz, if he played on the right, you wouldn't raise an eyebrow. And I think they're showing the way. I think that's, what, I think that's the way Tottenham are going to go. I think Tottenham are going to build this front five up as well because they play a very similar fashion, the high press. And we've seen that with Man City as well, where they've got players who can interchange. I think that's the way forward. And so I think we'll, the forwards are going to be fascinating. It really is. And yeah, um, back to the question, in terms of the big ones, I think... I think it's a It's going to be really interesting. So let's see what happens with the match. I think Alonso at Liverpool, they only need tweaking. Man City only need tweaking. Arsenal need that striker. If I was going for the really big one, I think it'd be Osman and Chelsea. I think that's the real big one, if they can get him. I think Chelsea are going to do a big number nine. They want Osman. Will it be someone else? Possibly. And the, and the, rest, the rest will be... I think Villa could go big as well. Maybe with a few with something, depending if they finish top four or not. And then Manchester United's finances will be a bit who they can get out as well. You know, the Lindel does Lindelof go and then they're bringing they're looking at centre halves United. They have been for yeah. quite a while. Do that. Obviously, we see players that players players trying to get rid of 
play, clubs trying to get rid of players is easier said than done. We've seen that with United a lot of the time. Um, I did a story recently about Chelsea, the hierarchy there, ready to move on from Raheem Sterling, which they are, but it's easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> and if these players don't want to leave, it's it's hard to move them. And if they don't want to go to Saudi Arabia, it's very, very hard to move them. <laughs> Yeah, you've um you said about Salah there and him going to Saudi, but you also spoke about United looking at offloading players and we see quite a bit of like Rafael Varane, Casemiro being linked mm-hmm. with Saudi Arabia. Um I think a few months ago or before January, that would have seemed very feasible with news of like players unhappy there, Jordan Henderson sort of doing a U-turn really quickly and going to Ajax. Do you think that they're here to stay for the long term, Saudi? And has their involvement changed things for clubs in Europe and particularly the kind of feedback that players have been given on it? I think some players won't settle there. You know, that's just a fact of life. It's a different, it's a dry country. Um, in terms of alcohol and stuff, so its families might not like it. There. Although we know a lot of them live in Bahrain and places like that and fly in, so it's a different. It's just a different environment, different culture, especially for these European players. I think European players are going to struggle more than say the South Americans, etc. Um, but when it comes to more salary, it's a different situation. You know, he's he is their prime target, and he has been since the pro league formed. He is he's that Muslim icon. He's the one who and he wants to go. My belief is he wants to go that pro league to to be that icon um, for that for that part of the world. You know, he is from Africa, but I said he's a, he's a he's a he's a Muslim. He's, he's an Arab icon. He, that 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 part of the world we can't underestimate how bigger how a bigger name he is. As yeah. big a name as is he as he is in in Europe, he's a huge figure for Asian football, for African football, for that. Not sounds bad. That non-European footballer, he yeah, really yeah. is that icon, and them getting him is their prime goal. And I think you know he'll be going there, you know, to try and do, maybe not do with Benzema, but like Benzema and Kante were saying, go there. But Salah will be going there um, on a higher level than those players. Those players are still outstanding. Of course, our Ronaldo still is, but Salah is still one of the best players in the world. He really is. And so I think if they can get him, that'll be a huge thing. And Liverpool, you know, are they ready to move on when Klopp goes? I think maybe. And you get a good fee for him. You move him on. He's, what, 32, 33 now. Um, I think it's the right time. And I think the Saudi, yeah, I, I have no problem with the Saudi thing, you know. Um, I think in terms of spending this money, I don't agree with the way the Premier League are doing it at the moment. It's profit and sustainability thing. Um, and the financial fair play, it's a mechanism to keep the big clubs bigger. You know, it, it's all very well Tottenham and Tottenham and Manchester United where they're saying you can't spend this and that. Well, you've had 30 years of spending big money. Why can't someone else do it? I, I disagree massively with the way the Premier League are doing it personally. Um, and and the, Saudi, <laughs> the Saudi Arabian League is not going to be um, restricted by any profit and sustainability in the near future. So they're going to continue spending. And uh, I don't think we'll see too many Premier League clubs slagging it off because, as we know, it's where they can they can jettison some of their higher earners. As we say, as we're talking about Merthyr, I think Manchester United will be um, looking to move a couple over there for sure. Definitely. And then, uh, sorry to finish on a bit of a down note, Graham, but we know you're a Middlesbrough fan. Uh, so just want to get a little bit from you on uh, how you assess their season, hopes for the rest of it. And also, as Tomo and I are both Man United fans, it'd be great to get your views on Michael Carrick as well. Um. It's been a pretty disappointing campaign for Middlesbrough so far. I think they had a really 
But I think that appeal was summer transfer window. Um, truth be told, yes, Morgan Rogers came in and was sold, but he was okay. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't. <laughs> in most people's starting eleven, elevens, Millsborough fans, he wouldn't have got in it. So I don't think there was too many tears uh, with with Morgan Rogers going. To be honest, um, it's you know from from the summer window, um, it was poor. It just really was. You know, from Lucas Engel and Alex Bangura to distinctly average left backs, really not good enough. Um, our two two of our best players, Lewis O'Brien, Sam Green, were coming on loan from Leeds. You know, we've bought. Sonny the Deng in goal. He's not bad. Glover, the Australian, who's in goal now. <sighs> Looks like he's still got to catch a call, to be fair. Um, <laughs> which is annoying because we've got two keepers out on loan. We've got two young keepers, Zach Hemming and Sol Brin in League One. Wonderful talents. And it's really infuriating. There's a Middlesbrough fan who loves the academy. And Middlesbrough's renowned for it. We're, we're signing players. And it seems to be getting in the way of our academy talent, and and I'm not a huge fan of it, you know. Um, Finnis Az comes in, looks good. Lati La came in from Atlanta, six million. He looks okay. It, it's all just a bit meh, you know. The, yeah. the players coming in, just it's just not good. I think we had a really really poor summer recruitment. You know, we made money on Morgan Rogers. Fair enough, we did well, but we're bringing players in like Sammy Silveira, who yeah, fair enough, he scored at the weekend. Is he better than a young Finn Cartwright, for instance? I don't think he is. I'd be amazed if we don't have someone better in the squad than some of the other players we signed. Alex Gilbert from Brentford looks a he's not even getting a run in the team. Um, and there's a, I said the left-backs, there's a reason we brought Luke Thomas in, in in January because the two other left-backs aren't very good. Um, yeah, so whilst, whilst they'll be singing from the hilltops about making money on Rodgers, the club will be. Yeah, um, it's poor. And, and the fact that Rogers went, Matt Crooks went, and then we didn't sign a replacement for him for the forward places. Yeah. Um, where are we now? Tenth in the table. That's probably where we should be. You know, that's probably about right. Um, I think we will just miss out on the playoffs, unfortunately. And Michael Carrick, it's a bit of frustration. We put in some fantastic performances. We got to the semi-final of the League Cup and it was wonderful. I loved taking my son to the semi-final. It was great. It's it's just a bit. I, th- I think Carrick as well would be a bit frustrated, but he has this little habit, and and he's not alone because we see it with Pep Guardiola quite a lot, and and maybe a Ten Hag we've seen it with as well. This obsession with playing players out of position, square pegs in round holes all the time. You know, we saw it with fin- uh, out. We saw it. In the, we played Middlesbrough played Sunderland a few weeks ago, and we had a front five of. Um, I think Greenwood played as forward, but Finns has left wing. We had Hayden Hackney playing attacking midfield and Marcus Forsen, right? I think of the five positions, all, they're all playing out of position. And it's just there's an obsession at the moment. And, and at the weekend, actually, we saw arguably all the players playing in the right positions and we went and beat Leicester. Yeah. Um, it, it, I'm sure it's the same at United now where I, I'd say similar. Oh, suddenly Bruno Fernandes is playing well. Oh, what? Because you're playing him as an attacking midfielder because you've got Kobe Mano playing and you're stopping Bruno Fernandes picking the ball up of Harry Maguire. Who would have thought that Bruno Fernandes was a fantastic attacking midfielder? Oh, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's people just playing out of position. It's just trend. We see, it, we see it at City, don't we? Vardyol playing left back. Oh, suddenly people can get at City at left back. Yeah, because you're playing a brilliant centre half at left back. It's not, yeah. it's not rocket science. <laughs> Uh, well, 
Graham, good luck for Middlesbrough for the rest of the season. Obviously, hopefully they can uh, push up towards one of those uh, playoff positions and maybe get back to the dreamland. But um, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we can get you back in the summer to talk through some of the big deals. Definitely. And hopefully, um, you can, well, I'm sure you guys will be waxing lyrical about Sir Jim when he opens his checkbook in the summer as well. 100%. Hopefully so. Thanks so much. I hope they do a lot better with their check. As I said, Mills had a bad summer. United did as well, so let's hope yeah. you have a better. Yeah. Let's, let's hope you have a. Let's let's hope you have a better summer than last as well. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much, Graham. Cheers. It's okay. Boys, I want to move on to the Champions League. So, Tomo, I must admit, I've really, really not watched much of the knockout phases. Uh, I watched the final bit of Arsenal-Porto and did manage to see the goal last night. But I saw a tweet uh, that went out earlier today about the Champions League. And basically what the journalist had said um, was that with BT having all matches behind the paywall, you have state-owned clubs now, one team with monumental advantage over the rest of the pack being favourites every year. You've had away goals taken away from it, which used to be jeopardy excitement for the knockout stages. Unless you've got a horse in the race and your team's in it, is it really, really boring and not worth watching now? It's a tough question because I just think the draw this year for the last 16 was terrible. It threw up not really any good fixtures, um, mainly because most of the good teams um, came top in their group and most of the lesser good teams came second. I think even PSG came second and they ended up getting drawn um, Real Sociedad. So years gone by, if you actually look at the last 16 um, rounds, there's usually one or two really big games that makes you, um, I guess, look forward to that certain round of fixtures. I kind of agree with that journalist in a sense. I don't think the away goals rule has helped things. I I believe it it means that teams go away from home and are happy just to get a nil-nil. Whereas before... A nil-nil draw away from home might not be in a, such a good result because obviously it only takes the um, it only takes the team to come to your place in the reverse fixture, get a goal, and then you need two goals. Um, so I don't think that's helped things. It's, it's a multitude of issues. I think he he hits the nail on the head with the BT Sport TNT Sports stuff. It's utter garbage coverage. No offense to to, the, to those involved. It's been utter garbage really ever since Gary Lineker left, I think. And in, in the UK, it certainly doesn't have the viewership that you'd expect the biggest European competition and club football competition to have. I don't know whether another issue could be how big and how competitive the Premier League is now. Um, so I don't know whether that's eclipsing it. It's a multitude of issues, but maybe it just sounds a little bit I guess, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit bitter from me as a Man United fan because we're not in it. Maybe if we were in it, I'd feel different, but it's been shy. I would, what I would say is I watched the Inter-Atletico game on Tuesday and that was a very good game. And Inter Milan surprised me. Um, I know they're, they're way ahead in the Serie A title race, um, battering all, of, all involved in, in Italy. And okay, they got to the Champions League final last year, but they were definitely seen as massive underdogs. 
if they go up against City this year, they'll still be underdogs, but I do think they're a better team this year. They looked unbelievable against Atletico and I can't believe they only won that game 1-0. So, yeah, like you just said, probably just a quirk of the draw. Um, and hopefully what that means, though, is that the quarterfinals, there'll be four massive games as opposed to eight average ones in this round. Laura, as a massive kind of EFL advocate and how, you know, we speak about the Championship League One, League Two every week and how um, clubs jump about positions so often and how much three points means. Do you think that there's like a a certain degree with the Champs League where there's just not quite the kind of passion there for it or the meaning behind it compared to kind of league fixtures? Yeah, I think there's something in what Tomo just said, actually, about the sort of rise of the Premier League being the biggest league in the world comfortably now. I mean, growing up, sort of La Liga quite often often had the best team. Sometimes Italy would with AC Milan, but we kind of get to see the highest level football every week in the Premier League now. Not that there aren't other good teams in Europe, um, but maybe it eclipses it a little bit. I also way preferred it when it was on ITV. Obviously, if you're on a more mainstream platform, there's more buzz about it. And buzz means people buying into it and more talk and everything like that. Um, Don't forget Messi and Ronaldo aren't there anymore. Two of the best players that everyone would tune into every week for the last 15, 20 years as well. So probably a mixture of things. Um, And I'll hold my hand up and say I was probably wrong about the away goals because I never liked that rule. could never understand it. used to hate seeing seeing teams go out when they drew. but having seen the results of the competition and the kind of style of the pragmatic games that we've seen since it's gone, I can understand what people are saying about the jeopardy that it puts into it. And it's probably a necessary evil. So a mixture of all of those things put together with the fact that the draw is pretty crap. Um, I'm someone that kind of gets into it these days a little bit later than this, probably quarters or definitely semis. But um, that's probably correlates with society these days, doesn't it? We want everything quick, quick, quick. And if the game doesn't mean as much, we're not as interested. And they mean a lot more the further the competition goes on. To a lesser extent, look at the Carabao Cup. I don't watch any of that, really, until the final. And then you're really interested. So, mixture of all those things. Um, but the Champions League still the Champions League. And, uh, yeah, look, maybe it needs a bit of a, a spice up. And I think there was a few formats being proposed recently that sort of were going to go into place and then end up not happening. Maybe they do need to do something with it to sort of recapture the imagination. But um, yeah, I'm certainly not overly excited as a neutral at the moment, certainly not as much as I was probably 10 years ago or even before. Yeah, they're bringing in a, they are bringing in a new format for um, next season, which will be this, but that's more changing the group stage from, um, I think it's eight groups of four to like a 36 team league and you play 10 games you don't play home and away and it's all it's all to do with your seeded so Man City well the the champions of the league so Man City probably Real Madrid Inter Milan they'll be all seeded number one then you get the likes of Arsenal Liverpool seeded two um so yeah look next season it will be freshened up and I'm really interested to see how that Swiss style league model will affect the competition but um also means more games. It also means a round of 32. What we're talking about now is the last 16. So it just means more games, more poor games. And then, like Laura just said, you probably have to wait until the quarters and the semis until you get the massive ties with everything on the line. Um, but, Laura, there is something what you just said about society. Maybe 
we're just a society right now who just want to moan about anything. And I, I put myself in that category because we just want the best now, now, now. And the, like the reality of football is quite often games are just poor or games are quite dull. And that Porto-Arsenal game yesterday, it was a poor game, but it was tactical. And sometimes you just got to put, like, what, what, what did Dolly Parton say? If you want the rainbow, you've got to put up with the rain. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe, you... maybe that Porto-Arsenal game, the first leg, it was tight. It was not a great spectacle, but maybe that sets up for an unbelievable spectacle in a second leg. We don't know yet. Yeah. And I think... Um... Do you remember when COVID was there and every single Premier League game was shown and all of a sudden you realise that there's a lot of poor football and I was crying out for yeah. just the three o'clock Gillettes to come back and just pick a couple of games that we can watch. And that's why the ITV stuff was good. You couldn't watch anything. It was just whatever ITV had picked and that the whole country watched that game on that night. And I think that works better, but obviously money talks. So, um, But yeah, definitely the thing about we just want stuff quick now don't we we want everything we want as good a content as we can get as quickly as possible and the best content in competitions comes towards the end I think also it's a point in time where we've just had the first leg of a poor draw of games if you think about great Champions League ties that you look back on it's the action of the second leg isn't it you know like your Man City Tottenham game the Real Madrid ties the PSG Barcelona the Liverpool Barcelona games the first leg sort of sets these ties up, doesn't it? And then it's the second leg where the action happens, where actually in a fortnight's time or four weeks' time or whenever the second uh, leg of these ties are complete, we might be like, well, actually, that was really good because there were yeah. three penalty shootouts, two late 90-minute equalisers to take it to extra time or to win it, and suddenly the yeah. Champions League's alive. The, the first legs are kind of a bit jostling for position, aren't they? Sort of in behind the jab and not trying to put yourself out of the tie especially now you've not got away goals as opposed to going on and winning the tie in the first leg which doesn't always tend to happen yeah that's a great point and with the I guess the exception of Man City maybe PSG but PSG go away from home to Real Sociedad and we know PSG have got um, well they've got an absolute fumble in them with the exception of Man City you'd say that all ties are in the balance so you do make a good point there. Quite often the first legs are KG affairs and they're the thing you have to watch and, and get through before the desperation and the, the madness of the second legs comes in. So yeah, maybe we should hold fire in judgment of the Champions League until um, a couple of weeks' time when those second legs um, are played. But that's, when the, that's where the away goal rule thing comes in, doesn't it? Because that gave the away teams in the first legs something different to think about rather than thinking... Let's just get them back to our place. So that's why I hold my hands up and say I think I was probably wrong on that one because that that does seem to be missed. Because of the second leg's all we, like like we've just said, we want the jeopardy in the games. The second leg has that. No one's moaning about that. It's the first legs that just feel a bit like us. Oh, the first leg. Should we tune into that or should we watch it next week? Basically, the second half when something might actually happen that's interesting. So yeah, um, maybe they've killed the the first leg a little bit with that. Laura, you mentioned there about uh, the Carabao Cup, though, and the final for that is this weekend, Liverpool versus Chelsea. Just want to, as you say, you'll be tuning into the final. Last year, Tommy, we had it as United fans watching against Newcastle and felt like a big occasion. Um, Laura, if you were a Liverpool-Chelsea fan, I guess you'd want to be able to get a uh, trophy on the board nice and early. And just your thoughts on whether it's going to be the start of the Klopp exiting quadruple uh, or Pochettino gaining a bit of momentum with Chelsea. 
I well, I fancy Liverpool to win it because they're a better side, aren't they? And they've probably got less pressure on them to win it because they're playing well at the moment. And Chelsea kind of need a or Pochettino needs a trophy to kind of justify his season because if he doesn't get everyone saying at the moment, well, he's eleventh in the league or whatever he is, but he's in a couple of competitions. Well, he needs to win one of them really, and then maybe it does balance the books for him. So it'd be interesting to see how that game plays out. It, Liverpool got a couple of key injuries, but it doesn't seem to matter at the moment. They keep seem to to stroll on without Trent, without Darwin, without Yotta last night as well. And um, and they find a way to win games and they've been there and done it before. So I can imagine that Jurgen Klopp's probably pretty um, keen to get a trophy on the board considering we're coming into the twilight of his Liverpool career. And um, they'll be right up for it just as much as Chelsea are. So, yeah, I will be interested in that. And you're right, it was good last season. There seems to be loads of buzz around it because Man United wanted a trophy and Newcastle hadn't won anything for years. and um, Maybe not so much this year, but still, big game. Yeah, I feared a little bit um, for that final when uh, these two played, they played each other, didn't they? The week after they both got through to the final in the Premier League and Liverpool beat Chelsea 4-1 and it it was men against boys, really. And notoriously, this fixture is actually quite boring. I think they played each other in the, the FA Cup and the League Cup final two seasons ago. I think it was either nil-nil or one-all in um, in extra time and Liverpool won both games on penalties. But actually, and I, I feared that maybe this final Liverpool would just batter them and it would be poor. But actually, I think since that game, the 4-1, Liverpool have had quite a couple of key injuries um, that may have affected them and especially has affected their squad. And Chelsea have kind of turned a little bit of a corner they won a couple of games before the um, Man City game, which, OK, they didn't get the result, but they one of their best performances of the season. So in, ter- in terms of the game itself, the two teams have come closer together, I think. But I do agree with Loro. Liverpool, they have got that winning mentality about them this season. I don't even think they played that well at all this year. And they, what happens against Luton when they went 1-0 down and then go and win 4-1. They've done that time and time again and that's all about mentality and that's what Jurgen Klopp brings to that club. Um, so yeah, look, it's hard to look past Jurgen Klopp and that Liverpool side, especially because Chelsea, okay, they have turned a little bit of a corner but how do they react? How does that young squad react when they go with a little bit of adversity and you, you fancy um, Liverpool to start really quickly? Well, you look as well in that Luton game um, midweek, and it was like, right, they are Nunesless, they're Salahless, they're Jotterless. Does that open the door? They're Trentless, Shabozlyless. Does that open the door for Luton to go and get something? And Luton go one nil up, and it's half time, and you're thinking, right, here we go. And then it's like the front three that he's got on the pitch: Harvey Elliott, Gakpo, and Diaz, all just go on then and score. Trent's missing, but Connor Bradley's come out the woodwork, who seems to be the best right back in world football currently. So. They've just got a constant flow of players who they seem to be able to bring in. And Laurie touched on the last pod, actually, that Klopp seems to be able to get the most out of players, regardless of them being this first name on the team sheet or a backup player at all times. Yeah, that's That's his genius. That's about that's when you have a good manager. It ain't necessarily about the players. To a lesser extent at the moment, we're seeing it with Spurs. When their players go out, they all play the same way. They're all on the same page. Do you know what I mean? And Liverpool have got that. We t- I've t- always talked about that three they have in midfield that are always kind of 
the opposite to household names. The other night it was Curtis Jones, Endo and maybe McAllister, but they do a job. Whoever's in that three will do the same job and hopefully create the same end result for Jurgen Klopp. And that's when you know that a manager has got his hold and his impression on the team to a point where whoever plays, it ain't about any individuals, it's just about the process and the philosophy and the way that that football club goes about winning football matches and Liverpool have that. So um, yeah. that's probably the difference between why they can win games when they're injured or even if they're not playing overly well and why other teams can't. If you look at if you look at Klopp and, and I guess the managerial role, I think the, the biggest challenge for a manager in those um, big clubs is not to keep your starting eleven happy, it's to keep those players on the fringes happy and to keep them full of confidence. And you go to show that Gakpo comes in, he's not moaning, he's not whinging, he doesn't look like, his, his head's not down, his body language isn't bad. And I'm just, in my head now, my mind's thinking of the likes of Anthony when he comes on the pitch and he's like all moany. And, and it's like, no, the, the players or the managers that are the best in the world, Klopp's and Guardiola's of this world, they keep the confidence throughout the whole squad. So it doesn't matter who gets injured. And look, Liverpool have got a great squad. Okay, like Salah Nunes are out. But then if you've got Gakpo as like a fourth choice, it's unbelievable to have. Um, but he comes in, looks really confident. And that's um, that's Klopp's magic. And, and I think the Premier League is going to really miss him next season because he's a really good character. And that exact point is why I always give Eric Ten Hag stick. Because no matter how it might be the players' fault if they're moping about and they're not putting 100% in or whatever, the best players make sure their players don't do that. And nine times out of ten, if they are doing that, they're gone. Or something decisive happens to change it. And that's what he's failed to do there. I know that's going off on a bit of a tangent, but you're right. That's the beauty of someone like Klopp. And I think, personally, Ange Postacoglu and Bielsa is the same at least. And obviously, it helps now that we can have five subs in the Premier League as well. You've got more chance of players keeping happy. But that is the difference between good managers who have a well-rounded control on everything, not just, like Tomo said, the starting eleven performing every week and the ones that come up a little bit short and have lots of little niggles left, right and centre because they can keep a handle on it. Well, just to touch on the injuries as well for Liverpool, um, if rumours are to be believed that Salah and Nunes were kind of rested from that Luton game to give them every chance of being able to make the cup final, those guys might not be in contention. But with Harvey Elliott, Gakpo and Diaz all scoring midweek, that obviously gives a few headaches for Klopp on the team if those guys are available. While they're playing in the Carabao Cup final, uh, boys, there's a chance for some teams to, to make some ground, specifically in the title race. First up, Newcastle-Arsenal. And if memory serves right, this is the infamous game from last year where the ball did or didn't go out from Willock. There was or wasn't a push uh, on Gabriel. And then was there was or wasn't an offside for Anthony Gordon. But they were kind of, in cricketing terms, three green lights for Newcastle in that setup, And the goal was given and they won 1-0. We've spoken, Lauro, at length over recent pods about Arsenal just seeming like they're a bit more up for it, a bit more settled this season. Do you think that they'll go and kind of overturn that result from last year and pick up a really, really big and three important points? This fixture does throw up stories, that being one of them. Season before last, Arsenal needed to beat Newcastle in the last kind of game of the season or one before um, and threw it away to get top four, I think, um, at Eddie Howe's newly appointed Newcastle. So it does throw up 
um, some stories and some Premier League kind of tangents. And to, in answer to your question, Arsenal have to win. They're, they're on their roll now that they can't be stopped from. If you want to win the Premier League, at some point you need to put together a run of games where you take yourself away from the rest of the pack. Man City do it every year. Liverpool have done it before. This is when they need to do it. No excuses. And their home games, they pretty much need to win all of them. They can't drop really any points at all, but let alone at home. So Newcastle, good side, but Arsenal are better. So go and show it and get the three points. And I think they will. I think this season there's a bit more of a goal between Arsenal and Newcastle than probably there has been before. And maybe even the last game before Newcastle had so many injuries. So um, I expect Arsenal to get three points there at the Emirates. And uh, no excuses, they can't slip up. Tom, I know that they've been having to play kind of Anthony Gordon as a false nine, but I think I saw in the week that Isaac's back in training. So potentially if they can add him back into the fold for it and move Gordon back out wide, they'll have a bit more of a recognised front three and might be able to cause Arsenal a a few more problems than maybe if the game had been in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I would, um, I'd go with Laro to be honest. I fully expect Arsenal to put Newcastle to the sword. Um, The only, I guess the only promising factor for Newcastle would be Arsenal's performance away in Portugal last night. Uh, it was pretty dismal and going forward, it was as poor as you could get, which is flies in the face of Arsenal's run of form lately where they've been free-flowing, free-scoring. So what does that do to the confidence of Saka and Martinelli, etc., when they couldn't get it done against Porto? If you want my opinion on that, I think they'll dig their heels in and have something to prove. And that fixture, I don't know why, but does always seem to be a bit of a needle, a needle to that fixture, whether it's um, whether it's Eddie Howe's assistant giving it large or Arteta's big personality or or what it is. There's there's always a bit of a needle, and and especially last season, Newcastle quite like they like the time wasting and they like the shithousery side of it but I just think because it's at the Emirates um, Arsenal will put them to the sword I think Newcastle have been pretty poor to be honest um, for a lot of the season I, I wonder if um, Dan Byrne will um, will be picked when you consider Bakayo Saka's in good form okay didn't play great against Porto but Saka versus Byrne is an absolute mismatch um, if I was Eddie Howe and who am I to give Eddie Howell advice? But if I was Eddie Howell, I'd, I'd play Tino Libramento up against um, Bukayo Saka just because I think he's he matches up better. But we'll see what happens. I think what's really interesting as well is just to reflect back on what you boys were just talking about for Klopp is... With Arsenal, I know they make substitutions in games and bring kind of key players off when games are done, but they've got quite a set starting eleven. I think, a lot of the time with the kind of key players. I just wonder, like how we saw your Harvey Elliott, Gakpo, Diaz, you know, Shabozlai missing for Liverpool. If uh, Arsenal had a couple of injuries to Martinelli and Saka, would they then be able to rely on the likes of Reese Nelson and Emil Smith-Rowe and Eddie Nketiah to still come on and do the business like Liverpool do, um, especially when they're playing midweek games like the Champions League that they've had to on Wednesday? They potentially would have thought about playing them in Porto and then have a fresh side to play Newcastle, but it doesn't seem like Arteta's got the trust there for those players. Well, I just think there you just mentioned, I don't think Arsenal have got a better squad than Liverpool. So Arsenal to be... Um, up, if 
up and in and around him on the tables shows how well he's how well Mikel Arteta's done really because below you likes the Saka and Martinelli okay they got Trossard um, but Trossard's probably not on the same level um, and Havertz has come in I don't think he's on the same level he's obviously a different type of player so I think that that what you sort of your the question you're posing there is is an example of how well Mikel Arteta's do it. Um, yeah. Okay, they spent a lot of money, so maybe they've not spent it in the right areas. Um, but it's a difficult one. You can never ask the question, how well will this team do without all of their best players? It's like, well, you've, you've got your best players because you hope that they're fit and and you hope you can thrive with them. So it's almost like a hypothetical question that hopefully Arsenal fans never want to answer because they don't want Bukayo Saka to be injured for the next two months and hopefully it won't happen. I think, though, as a podcast, we've kind of sat before and maybe made light of Liverpool mis- midfield now with, like, you know, Endo and McAllister not playing as well and adding Shabozlai, who was an unknown kind of figure and things like that. So then we speak about how he's getting a real tune out of those players in midfield, Klopp. And, you know, we spoke about maybe Liverpool got an embarrassment of riches in the striking at, uh, options, as Arsenal do. But Arsenal got a really, really strong midfield as well don't they with Declan Rice added to it Odegaard you know so maybe it's a bit of a question of who actually does have the strongest squad there I don't think Arsenal have the embarrassment of riches in the forward areas I think that's the difference between Arsenal and Liverpool you can't if you take out Diaz, Salah and Nunes you can put in Yota, Gakpo and Elliot if you take out Martinelli, Saka and Jesus it's Trossard, Millsmith, Rowan and Ketia that's probably the difference. In other areas, they're probably similar. But I think on the flip side of that, you know, if you need a bit of luck, and if injury problems go your way, sides tend to do well when they can name a similar eleven in the Premier League every week. Think back to when Leicester won the league; they almost had the same eleven every single week. You can name their back four and back uh, midfield four right now, and if you can get that continuity and the momentum, it can build. So it's like. Tomo said it's hypothetical. If you're unlucky, and you know Saka's probably the big one, Odegaard as well. If they can remain fit, I think they've got enough there to sustain the title challenge and, and maybe even win it. But of course, if probably any like if Liverpool lost Salah for the rest of the season, I don't think they'd win the league. But with him, they've got a chance. Yeah. So regardless of how good the squad is, there's normally one or two players that are the big difference. If Mares and Kante were injured for Leicester that year, they'd have had no chance. Do you know what I mean? On a on a sort of yeah. More exaggerated example. So, yeah, um, bit of luck needed is probably the uh, the summarisation there. A couple of other games in the Prem just to cover off, boys. So, Man City also in the title hunt. They go to Bournemouth, so everyone will have Man City as uh, red hot favourites there. But a lot of people got Haaland and Solanke in their FPL side, so we'll be hoping for some goals in that one. And then in the top four race, there's no game for Tottenham because they were due to be playing Chelsea, but obviously they're in the Carabao Cup final. Uh, Villa hosts Forest and United hosts Fulham. Bit of news on United um, is that Luke Shaw has had a reoccurrence of a hamstring injury and looks set to be out uh, for the remainder of the season and faces a fitness race for the Euros. Tomo, just come to you first on Luke Shaw's injury for United as a blow and do United need to have a new left back? in the summer it is a massive blow it's a massive blow for Man United but um, longer term I think it's a massive blow for Luke Shaw because like you just touched on there I think it's now time for Man United to 
move on from Luke Shaw, um, not offering many new contracts when that when that time arises, and to target a new first time a new first team left back because the best ability as a Premier League as a Premier League player is availability, and unfortunately for Luke, I know he doesn't always. Well, he never means to get injured, but unfortunately for him, he falls into that Chris Smalling, Phil Jones category of um, Abu Dhabi category of being really injury prone, probably stemming back from that awful leg break back in, I think it was 2014, wasn't it? He's um, um, Since he's joined United, he's now missed 200 competitive fixtures through injury, albeit one yeah. was that horrendous leg break, but he just seems to always have muscular injuries each season now. And then he gets back in the side and everyone waxes lyrical about how much better United are as a side because of the support he offers Rashford. But now we're in a situation where we've sent a young left back out on loan, Alvaro Fernandez. Malassia, no one's seen in a year and is on the side of police milk cartons as a missing person. Um, <laughs> and Regulon, who we did have on loan, we got Shaw back and terminated his loan. And he's now applying his trade at Brentford. So a bit of poor squad management planning there from Ten Hag as well now, where we might have to move Dallo out to left back, who's obviously picking up in the right back situation, or we're being yeah. left really exposed in situations where we've got Lindelof there, where we look so shaky with him in that position. Yeah, what, what I don't understand is if you look at Liverpool, if you look at Liverpool as an example, um, Trent gets injured and maybe Joe Gomez had to fill in at left back, so he couldn't fill in at right back. So who do they bring in? They bring in an academy, academy graduate in Connor Bradley. Just it's needs must. Marcus Rashford made his debut for Man United because Anthony Martial got injured in the warm-up and we already had a couple of players out. I think it was Latan or, or Lukaku or whoever it might have been, Rooney. Um, so, and you, when these injuries happen, you quite often call on your academy players, the 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. Where is that one? I know you just mentioned um, Fernandez, Alvaro Fernandez, I think it is, um, who's gone out on loan. But actually, that loan is an obligation to buy. So it looks like he's on his way out. It's another example of, of, I guess, how poorly Man United have been managed in the sense that you can... Look, Luke Shaw's a fantastic player. And like you just touched on, he brings so much to that team when he plays. He's brilliant on the ball. He's, he's I would say, a good Premier League left-back. I wouldn't say a, a good defensive Premier League left-back. He's a fantastic attacking Premier League left-back. Um, so obviously, it's gutting when he gets injured. But his career path... And over the years, he's proven time and time again that he gets injured. So the decision to send back Regeon, um now seems like a stupid one because if you're playing Lindelof at left back, it's, um, it stifles everything when you've got the ball. It might be a little bit solid because he's a centre-half, but it, it will stifle, stifle all our build-up play. And our style of play now goes out the window and it's all about just getting results from now until the end of the season. And less so from a United point of view, but looking more towards the Euros, Lauro, obviously a position at left back that we've discussed in the group chat that Luke Shaw's kind of held down. He scored, well, he scored a goal in the final against Italy in the last Euros, an important player in that England team. If he's not fit in time for the Euros, what do you think Southgate will do with that position? He'll put Trippier at left back. Southgate will, won't he? If we go to the Euros and Shaw isn't fit, and what worries me is I don't like like he might well be fit for June, 
But is he going to be ready to play at the highest level if he hasn't played all season? We've seen in the past with England, some of our top players have got injured. I remember Rooney breaking a metatarsal one year. I think Owen done his knee one year. And they didn't play for two or three months, but we took them thinking they'll be fit by like the second or third group game. But it doesn't normally bode well. You know, you need a couple of big games to get to get going again and all of a sudden you're out. And left back isn't a position we're overly blessed with because Southgate doesn't really trust Chilwell. And I'm not sure I do um, in a team that's going to be looking to win the tournament. And it's a massive shame because Luke Shaw, as you've just alluded to, has been fantastic in the last couple of tournaments, um, particularly in that Euros when we played kind of a back five and he had a little bit of a bit more of a, a, t- a um, license to attack. He scored the goal in the final and uh, replacing him is going to be hard. Like the likes of Tyreek Mitchell, I don't think is at that kind of level. Um, you know, Colwell more of a centre back. Um, like we said, Chilwell maybe way too much of an attacking left back, and it hasn't got the trust. So Luke Shaw was the one really. So it's going to be interesting to see what we do there if he if he is taken and risked, or whether we look to um, you know just play Trippier in any games we've got between now and then, and, and just use him, which I think will be the case. But gutting. But England have been pretty lucky with injuries over the last few tournaments. You know, you've got to ride them at some point. Every other international team does. And I'd rather, although it's a blow, I'd rather it be Luke Shaw than probably Walker, Rice, Bellingham, Kane, Saka. So, not the end of the world. Right, boys, we'll move on to the rest of the EFL action. I want to start with the championship. Laurie, we briefly touched on on Monday the Leeds versus Leicester and you uh, opened up officially the championship title race. There was some midweek action with Ipswich uh, scoring in the 96th minute, but nearly drawing with Rotherham, who seemed down. So maybe that's a sign of where Ipswich are at the minute. And Southampton lost again. So do you think that if Leeds can go on to beat Leicester tomorrow night, that you are red hot favourites to then chase them down? Red-hot favourites to chase them down and effectively win the league is probably a stretch because we're still six points behind them and Leicester generally win every other game. Um, but they have lost five this season. Leeds have only lost six. So it's not as sort of... The golf isn't probably as big as what you'd expect. Um, but it all comes... For that, it does come down... Because if Leicester win, it's back to 12 points. Southampton have dropped points now. Ipswich aren't going to sustain... Certainly not a title challenge, and probably most people fancy them to fall away a little bit from the automatic chasing pack, even though they had a good result midweek. So I would say the the onus is on Leeds and Southampton, and we really, really, really need to win tomorrow to have any chance, I think, of chasing Leicester down. What I would say is Leeds are unbeaten at home all season. We've won eight in a row, and in those eight games, we've conceded one goal. Seven clean sheets and one goal conceded. So, and we've already beaten Leicester this season. So, I haven't looked at the odds. I'd be interested to see. I wouldn't be surprised if we're favourites, especially Leicester coming off the back of losing at home to Middlesbrough. And really, really interesting game and probably the biggest game you could possibly ask for outside of the Premier League, maybe ever, in the Championship. Laura, has that good defensive run coincided with... um... Him putting Ethan Ampadu back into centre-half. Yeah, it's coincided with Pascal Strout getting injured and Ampadu dropping back to form a Welsh partnership with Joe Rodon, who, by the way, has been absolutely sensational for Leeds. And I can see why he was signed by Tottenham in the first place. Hopefully we can keep him um, in the summer. And then on top of that, 
we've got a little player that we signed from Germany called Gruev in the summer who didn't really get a look in, but he's slotted in where Ampadu was alongside Kamara and he's been absolutely electric in there. Brilliant. And him and Kamara have sort of provided that almost um, double pivot, I guess you'd call it, to allow Somerville, Rutter, uh, Willie Nonto lately, Bamford, Piro to go on and do the magic they've been doing all season. So the balance is fantastic. And we're really strong in every position. And even like at right back, we've signed Connor Roberts from Burnley and he can't get a game because Archie Gray's made that position his own. Um, Junior Furpo, the Brazilian that we signed from Barcelona of all clubs a year ago, suddenly got his own chance and he's a bit of a fan's favourite. So it all seems to be coming together. And like I always say, if we had started a little bit brighter, even one more win, then it would go within three tomorrow. But it's all ifs and buts. Win tomorrow. And like we spoke about last pod, Leicester have jeopardy then in every game that Leeds win alongside them. And I think that'll be quite a lot because we look really, really good. So, yeah, massive. Just looked at the live odds uh, as we speak on Skybet of a bookmakers obviously available. Leeds are just a shade over evens, Laura, at 21 to 20. Um, the draw's 13 to 5 and Leicester are 12 to 5. So they're just under two and a half to one um, to win at Leeds. but. Leeds' form is that you've won the last five league games on this screen here without conceding a goal. So that's probably why your favourites to win it. Not bad, is it? Not bad at all. Uh, one of the other sides in that kind of promotion hunt, as say they lost midweek Southampton, they take on Millwall, Tomo. And Millwall might uh, have a familiar face in the dugout. Yeah, so they've sacked Joe Edwards after, um, well... I want to say about 22 games, was it? I know we had a 21.05% win record. Um, we spoke a bit about Joe Edwards, quite an unknown, relatively unknown, but I think he was part of Frank Lampard's Chelsea setup. I think he's been part of many England um, youth team setups, an aspiring young coach, and it's obviously not gone well for him. They're knocking on the door um, of getting relegated, so they've made the change and they brought in Neil Harris who Laura rightly says earlier on in the season got sacked by League Two Gillingham. Then, so then he failed upwards because then he got the Cambridge job, who were in League One. Um, not really, not really like done unbelievably well there. Probably done okay. Give it a five out of ten, and he's gone and now got a Championship job. So that's just the 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 mad world of managerial merry-go-rounds. But obviously he has got the tie with Millwall where he was obviously the former player and he managed them, I think, three seasons ago. So probably probably a sensible appointment given that he knows the club already and the sticky predicament they're in. Um, obviously they need to stay in that league. Yeah, and it is a really, really sticky predicament as well because looking at the table... They are one point off it of QPR. QPR, who are now the Premier Pod Cup holders, they take on Rotherham, who are rock bottom uh, in their first defence of the Premier Pod Cup. But as I say, Rotherham did score three, including what they thought was a late equaliser against Ipswich midweek, albeit Amari Hutchinson went up the other end and scored. But a bit of spirit there from them. Um, but if QPR do go on to win that, as the bookies expect them to do, the Mill will need to start picking up some points very quickly alongside the likes of Huddersfield, Stoke, Swansea and Plymouth. Um, and, who are all down in amongst it? And just quickly, can I can I offer my sincerest apologies to um, to Danny Roll, the Sheffield Wednesday manager, and this Sifuentes, the the QPR manager? Because actually, when they when those two got appointed, 
Um, I didn't have a fucking clue who either of them were. And I thought, absolute nightmare appointments. But the reality is they're, they're good coaches, got them playing a good style of play. And if it wasn't for both their poor starts to the season, those two would be probably mid to low mid table. Um, so they've given both those clubs a really good chance of staying up. And that obviously makes Neil Harris's job even more difficult because Millwall are in free fall at the moment. Like you said, lost six out of the last seven games. So yeah, just apologies to Danny Roll and Sifuentes um, because they've got them play both, both those clubs playing well. And all you want as a fan is hope. And both both those clubs have got hope that they can um, stay in the division now. I've just seen one club, Laurie, that could be pulled down into that relegation battle is Blackburn. They've won two games in their last 15 in the league. But the funny thing about it is, is that they have the top goal scorer in the league in Sammy Schmodix on 18 goals and three assists. Yeah, but they have just appointed John Eustace, who is a good manager. And I don't think they'll fall too far. I think they've had their bad patch and I think they'll be more sort of mid-table. Um, Huddersfield, who are currently in 20th with, is it Brighton Writer as their manager? That is who I wouldn't want to be a fan of at the moment, to be honest with you. I think Rotherham are obviously gone. Uh, agree, Roll's done a good job at Wednesday, but maybe have too much to do. Um, but I fancy QPR and Millwall maybe to do a little bit more than Huddersfield between now and the end of the season. Um, and although we're not huge fans of the way Stoke City operate, I think Stephen Schumacher will come good there and get the results needed to sort of steer them clear of it as well. So um, Huddersfield would be my bet to finish in that 22nd position. Just one other game to mention in the championship at the other end of the table, West Brom versus Hull, fifth versus sixth, 55 points and 54 points. As Laurie rightly said off air, both teams win every single game that they're involved in. So interested to see how they both pick up three points in that one at the weekend. Just a couple of fixtures from the rest of the EFL as well, boys. So in League One, top of the table, Portsmouth go to Charlton, uh, who obviously got Nathan Jones in charge now and picked up a point in their last fixture. Derby versus Barnsley, which is a big game, second versus fourth. And Blackpool, who are in around the playoff picture, host Bolton, who are obviously in the automatics. And then in League Two, the favourite league of all of us, um, first place Stockport host Swindon. Second place Mansfield uh, go to Salford. Salford still unbeaten under Kyle Robinson. Another playoff picture race, uh, eighth place Gillingham. They have Wrexham, who are in third place and obviously looking at the automatics. Tenth place Notts County. They host fourth place crew, but Notts County still in the mix. And fifth place MK Dons versus Newport. Newport are down in 15th, but they're actually top of the form table with 12 points from their last five games. And as Lauro says, it's as low as 18th that are in that playoff picture down to Salford at the minute. So uh, another big round of fixtures in League Two. They're, they're only two, I was just having a look there. They're two points off the playoffs. Is that Newport? Yeah. So they're well within... They're, like we always say, don't we? There's a there's a team always in every of of these EFL leagues around about this time of the year who go on a run, and they get momentum out of absolutely nowhere, and then sneak into the playoff positions. And so Newport, obviously, every chance of doing that because bang and form. And they've got a really good player called Will Evans, who has got I think maybe maybe third top scorer in the league. I think he's a winger. 
but someone that I think a lot of certainly League One and maybe even Championship clubs were looking at in January and didn't happen. But come the end of the season, I think we'll be getting a move um, upwards and onwards. So when you've got a player like that that can bang in goals every week, you're always in with a chance of picking up results. Um, I remember Paul Mullin at Cambridge a few years ago when they won the league. If you've got a standout player, sometimes he can drive you through. He's certainly one of those for uh, for Newport. So, yeah, good signs for them. But there's, you, like we say every week, there's about 15 teams that could get in there in that league. Have you seen what his manager said about him this week? He said that um, he's going to put him in a headlock and force him to sign a new contract with a club. He said, I, I absolutely love the bones off him. And... i got a funny story about Will Evans. Uh, if you'll let me share it. Yeah. The day of uh, Man United playing Newport in the FA Cup, I was playing golf with my brother. For those who don't know him, obviously listeners, he works in agriculture, my brother. And he said to me on the 14th tee, he was like, one of my clients' brother is playing against Man United today. Imagine if he scores for them. And uh, it was Will Evans who got in front of Varane, wasn't it, at the front stick and uh, put the ball in to equalise. And yeah, Will Evans is comes from a family of farmers, was a farmer himself, I think played in the Welsh Leagues and then has suddenly just been taken on and catapulted up. So uh, yeah, a little story for you. Yeah, he, he went viral, didn't he, before that game when everyone was, I think people like like my accounts were um, saying, oh, five years ago he was a farmer and now look at him. Yeah, <laughs> making Varane look like a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not after season. Boys, move on to non-league. And Laura, I want to bring you in um, to discuss Yeovil. Obviously, midweek fixture that they won um, against Western Supermares. Just a little bit on their display there and their weekend fixture at Chelmsford. Same as what I've been saying recently, really. The performances aren't at a level that they were... A couple of months ago in the midst of that huge winning run that we were on when pretty much everyone was fit, but we keep winning. And that's the sign of a really good team. And you were there on Tuesday as well. You saw that, you know, Western Supermare equipped themselves quite well. They've been good in both games we've played, but both times we've just had a bit too much quality for them. And, um, you know, eventually that told. But the biggest thing about that night was that Worthing, who I keep talking about in second place, with Ollie Pierce, who's got 32, 33 goals this season, lost. So it was kind of a six-pointer for us. They didn't get three points and we did. And now we're 13 points clear with a game in hand, with only 13 games left. We're pretty much going to have to lose half of our games now, um, not to win the league. So a really, really good position to be in. And that takes us into Chelmsford on Saturday. And if there's a game where you wanted a little bit of a swing before, it was that one, because really difficult game coming up. Really difficult game against a team that are third in the league. Got a game in hand on Worthing to go second. And we're going to be without Jordan Young, who's suspended after picking up 10 yellow cards, which is ridiculous for, you know, a sort of a finesse playmaking midfield um, winger. So, yeah, difficult job in hand at the weekend against Chelmsford, who are a very good side. Obviously, hope we win the game, but because of what happened on Tuesday, it's not actually as important that we do. I think you said you'd take a point, and I think I'd probably agree. Brilliant. And then, just before we reveal the answer to the trivia question, can I just um, ask you to say a few words on Torquay as well? So, news broken today that they've uh, entered into, or their uh, committee have instructed um, to enter into administration. And it sounds like they've also lost their manager this evening, Gary Johnson, who obviously has been a previous stalwart of uh, Yeovil Town. Yeah, and it, it, commiserations to Torquay fans because 
watching football clubs go into administration seems to be more and more um, of a regular occurrence these days. And it's not what we want to see, even though Torquay was supposed to be our biggest rivals at the start of the season going into National League South. It was supposed to be a two horse race, um, which unfortunately they're coming 12th in. But as you can see behind the scenes, there's been problems. And for a lot of the season, Torquay fans have bemoaned the money put into the club, the amount of um, cash that's been injected on the playing budget in particular. They haven't been pleased with Gary Johnson all season and they've wanted and been calling for his head for a long time. And it's all come to a head today. And Clark Osborne, who is their owner, um, I think he led like a fan kind of consortium that bought the club maybe seven or eight years ago. And it's kind of been a tenure of two halves because they won the National League South back in 2018. They were a penalty shootout away from the from League Two, um, losing out to... Uh, Dave Chandler's Hartlepool a couple of years ago, and since then it's gone from bad to worse. We're only getting out of the National League South, and now they're in the doldrums of mid-table, probably a 10-point deduction, lost the manager, and the owner has stepped down as chairman and said he won't be putting any more funding into the club. So um, dark days down at Plainmore, and we can only hope that they find the um, the right suitors next time to bring them out of those... Um, miserable times and, and back up where they belong because they're they're really a probably a football league club talkie so not nice to see but that's football it is yeah and sorry to be really cutthroat but as a Yeovil fan looking to go up into the National League next season if they've potentially got a need to sell players talkies or get some wages off their books any players in their ranks that you think could climb up into National League and represent the Glovers sorry or- I know it's crude what the body's not even cold yet yeah sorry well look Aaron, <laughs> their best player is a, a guy called Aaron Jarvis who is a player we wanted to sign in the summer um and he's out of contract this summer I think so even if you know even if um, they weren't in administration it doesn't look like Torquay were going to be getting promoted this season and he's a player that makes an awful lot of sense because I think we're going to be in the market um for a centre forward come June, July, and he fit the mould because he's obviously already used to playing down here in the southwest. He scored a lot of goals at National League level before, and I think he'd suit us really well. So, yes, that is a player that I'd want. But um, for the time being, commiserations, Torquay. Yeah, apologies. That was too soon. <laughs> right, boys, we'll wrap up this week with the answer to Loro's trivia question. So, Loro, just to recap the question, it was four players who've made over 150 Premier League appearances whose surname only contain two of the same letter. Is that correct? That's correct. The answer... Can you reveal those four players? I may. The answers are Jason Dodd, Ben Mee, Rob Lee, and Phil Bab. If you guessed Key, the old Sunderland Swansea playmaking midfielder, you'd be wrong because his surname is Sung Young. And if you guessed Dembaba, then you're not very good at maths because he played about 100 Premier League games um, for Newcastle and Chelsea and such like. So they were the four we were looking for. And well done to anyone that probably got three of them because it was quite a tough one. Yeah, great question that. Uh, And Tomo, get your thinking hat on because you're up on Monday with next round of trivia. Boys, that's all we got time for. Uh, We'll be back on Monday where we'll review all the weekend action, including that Carabao Cup final. Look ahead to any midweek action as well. But boys, pleasure as always. Cheers. Cheers, chaps.